Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory, Glory to, to you, you Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to all your fathers and grandfathers out there. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. Will you please pray with me? Father, as we come now to your word, we do pray that you would take the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our thoughts, and that they would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Please take your word and by your spirit, bring it down to the very bottom of our hearts and souls, the very marrow of our bones, that we might be changed. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Aaron and I have been watching the Apple TV show Silo. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a dystopian science fiction show which is kind of genre that I really like. If you're not really a fan of that genre, you might not like it as much as I do. But the premise is that 10,000 people are living for 150 years inside of a giant silo. And there's one staircase in the middle and it goes up and down and there's, you know, 150 floors. But they can't go outside of the silo or they will die. But nobody exactly knows why. No one knows what happened that got them into the silo. No one knows what is happening outside the silo to keep them inside the silo. And no one even remembers now after 150 years what life is like outside of the silo because almost everyone there was born inside the silo. And then one day, one of the main characters, Juliet, her life is disrupted. Her boyfriend is murdered. And suddenly she's handed the role of the sheriff of the silo and she goes from down to the very bottoms where she's keeping the generator running all the way up to the very top of the silo where uh, the sheriff is. And she becomes, she takes the role of the sheriff over the entire silo and she begins to uncover many things going on in the life of the silo. And she also finds items, relics of the old world before the silo. And one that she finds disturbs her life and disrupts it completely. It's a Georgia travel book. And inside the book is pictures of Georgia forests and the Georgia beach and Georgia sunsets. In this very meaningful moment, she's looking through this travel book and you watch her eye straining to take in all these images, things that she has never seen and has no context to understand and they're beautiful to her. But you also watch her face realize that what she is looking at is telling her that she was made for something more than a silo. She's disrupted both by what's wrong in the silo, but also by something that is more beautiful than the silo. It's pulling her and pulling her out. We have a similar thing going on here in our Old Testament passage in Judges chapter 15. 
It's really a story about disruption, massive disruption in the nation of Israel that's caused by Samson. Samson and his mayhem and chaos and violence that he brings into the picture and into the story. He's massively disrupting Israel. Two things this morning. Massive, sorry, disruptive salvation and a disruptive witness. Disruptive salvation and a disruptive witness. First, notice all the chaos that Samson is creating. If you've been with us for the last two Sundays and we've been going through the life of Samson, you know that everything we learn here in Judges 15, we find nothing new or changeable about Samson's character. He is as impulsive in his decision-making as he was at the beginning. He's enslaved to his desires and as to his passions. He runs hot. You'll notice that his anger and hotness, the hotness of his anger is mentioned several times in this passage from chapter 15. He's violently angry. And of course, he has this supernatural strength that comes to him at times. But he sounds a lot like, if you notice, James chapter 4 in our New Testament passage. What does James say there? That He talks about quarrels. He talks about fights and fighting. This is Samson. Samson does not have, so what does he do? Well, he murders. He covets. He fights. Samson is controlled by his passions. He wants to get what he wants so he can spend those things on his passions. James 4 is basically a description of Samson's character. You remember in chapter 14 when during his wedding with his fiancée, he makes this bet, and the bet doesn't go his way. This was last week that Tim was preaching about. The bet doesn't go his way. His bride essentially betrays him. And so what does he do? It says here we have it in verse 19 of chapter 14. He abandons his wife, it says, in hot anger. He leaves and goes back home. But then chapter 15, what happens? Well, Samson cools down. Samson has a marital desire. He would like to be with his wife that he left. And so he shows back up with a goat. Hey. What's up, baby? Brought some barbecue. Sorry about killing 30 of your friends last week, but how about you give Samson a kiss? <laughs> this is not going to work. This is ridiculous. And his father or her father knows this. So he's stunned. He says, I thought you hated her. Utterly hated her. But what happens? Samson doesn't get what he wants. So he begins a cycle of tit for tat, retributive violence acts against the Philistines, and they respond to him. And why does Samson do all this again and again and again over that passage here in verses five through nine that we just for the time of length, we cut out another story in which Samson retaliates against the Philistines and they retaliate against him. In verse 11, it tells us why Samson has done all this. He says, as they did it to me, so I did it to them. As every father has heard from their children, they started it, right? But more than that, we need to read this and understand this spiritually in the context of Judges. Samson here is taking all his cues, his cues of behavior, from the Philistines. He's acting just like them. You remember, as Tim mentioned, that Samson was set apart from birth with his Nazarite vows. Samson is meant to be set apart. And next week, we will see again that the one thing it seems like Samson does not want to do is to be set apart from the Philistines. He's very intertwined with the Philistines his entire life. Not only that, it seems he's very committed to not being set apart to God. He never wants to keep. He's constantly breaking these Nazarite vows that he has taken. has been put on his life. Tim talked about this last week, but we see it again here in chapter 15. In verse 15, he uses the corpse of a dead donkey. Remember, a Nazarite was not supposed to touch the body of a dead corpse. But he says very emphatically, he put out his hand and took it took the jawbone of this dead donkey that was a fresh jawbone 
This is a recently dead donkey. This is not something a Nazarite was supposed to touch. He does it and breaks his vow again and again and again throughout his life and his story because he doesn't want to unwind himself and be set apart from the Philistines or to God. Do you know what a green briar vine is? We have a lovely green belt outside behind our house, sort of a nice little meadow and a trail that winds through it out to Escarpment Road. And it's really lovely, but it's got green briars everywhere. And unlike anywhere else in the Greenbelt area that has tons of trees and live oaks, and this area is almost like a total meadow because it's covered in greenbriar vines. They're sort of aggressive, um, thorny vine. And really, in the spring, they look quite beautiful. They have big leaves. They're kind of rubbery. They cover a little bit of shade. But they, during the spring, they flower. And they have pretty flowers. In fact, if you can pick a bud out before it's blossomed and eat it, it's very sweet and very tasty and nice. When it first starts growing, it winds itself up into the branches of a tree or into a bush, and you know it gives some nice contrast to that tree, especially if it's a live oak, some color that pops, and it looks nice. It seems they seem to sort of go together. And then over time, as that vine winds itself up to the top of the tree, it begins to send its tendrils down looking for brother and sister vines growing on the ground down at the bottom. And when they reach each other, they begin to interwine themselves with each other and pull at each other. And then over time, those vines from the top of the tree down to the ground, they get stronger and thicker and multiply until you can't even see the tree anymore. Until the branches end up getting bowed down. They're no longer reaching up to the sky. They're reaching down to the ground. That vine is now suffocating and choking the tree until finally and eventually they can even pull down the tree to the ground and kill it. And that is Samson. He is so intertwined and interwoven with the Philistines that he can't even understand and see himself apart from the Philistines. But you have to remember that Samson represents Israel. He's a judge over Israel. So he stands as a metaphor and a representation for all that Israel is. And here at the center of our story in Judges 15, we find that that is exactly what is true of Israel as well. The phrase here in verse 11 of chapter 15, if you know anything about Judges and what's going on in the story of Judges, verse 11 here and what the tribe of Judah, which is meant to be one of the ruling tribes in Israel, says to Samson should pop out to us. Because all throughout Judges, you have Israel crying out to God because of the nations that are around Israel that are oppressing them and ruling over them. But here in verse 11, we have the tribe of Judah saying the exact reverse of that. Don't you know, Samson? The Philistines are rulers over us. We want it that way. We don't want you disrupting this friendship that we have, this peace that we have with the Philistines. You're rocking the boat, Samson. You're overturning the apple cart. Will you stop doing this? Not only that, they don't just want him to stop. They are actually helping the Philistines instead of Samson. They want to hand Samson over. In other words, what's happening here, you have to understand in the context of the narrative of Judges, spiritually what is happening is Israel is saying, we are choosing to be ruled by the Philistines instead of choosing to be free in God. Even this bizarre story here about the foxes is indicating the same thing. It's a strange story. And of course, it's meant to indicate something about the prowess of Samson, his ability to capture 300 foxes, but it's a subtle poke, a narrative poke from God right into the face of dozing Israel. Because it sounds very similar to another story. Not that long ago, there was another guy 
with 300 torches was Gideon. He took 300 men out of the tribes of Israel. And those 300 men took torches and they went out and they ended the rule of the Midianites. And the Midianites never ruled again in Israel. But Samson here uses foxes. Well, one of the reasons why is because no Israelite will join Samson. In fact, all throughout the Samson narratives, unlike any of the other judges in the book of Judges, no one, not a single Israelite, joins up with Samson. There's probably good reasons for that. Samson's uncontrollable. But Israel at this point is also uncontrollable. And God is using Samson as a disruption to wake God's people up. That this alliance with the Philistines, it isn't right. It isn't good. They were made for something more. They had forgotten their true king. They had forgotten what world they had been made for. Who they had been made for. And God is using Samson to make Israel see how thick the vines had grown between them and the Philistines. How interwoven they had become. So my question is, what vines are dragging you down? What vines felt sweet at the beginning? Tasted sweet. Tasted good. But as they've interwoven themselves into your life, they have made your heart and your soul dead. Asleep to God. What vines are robbing you of the abundant life that you are meant to have with the God of the universe? What's ruling your life now? So that you're no longer reaching up toward God. But you've become so enmeshed with this world and the ways of this world that you are bowed down to it. Perhaps you, perhaps we need a disruption. Because this world, despite its goodness, was never meant to satisfy your soul. The goodness and greatness of food and sex and vacations and your significant other, your spouse, and comfort and money and a good reputation, all these good things were not meant to satisfy your soul, but rather to make you thankful to the gift giver who brought them into your life that you might be satisfied ultimately in him. We were made for God. You were made for more. And your heart and your soul will always, always be restless and uneasy until you find your rest in God. And often, even especially when all those good things are filled in your life to the max, you will especially be restless, especially be uneasy until you find your rest in God. So God is using Samson to remind the nation of Israel that friendship with the world is enmity with God, which is what James tells us in our New Testament passage as well. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Well, what does friendship with the world mean? It's a strange phrase. I think you can boil it down essentially to this. A friend is someone whom you listen to their advice and suggestions without suspicion, without prejudice, and you go along with it. When a friend says, listen, you got to try this taco. It's really good. What do you say? No, no. You say, I trust you and I eat it. When a friend says, we've got to go to this movie. It's so good. I watched it. You will love it. You know, your friend already knows something about them. You, you trust them and you go to the movie and what inevitably often happens. You do love it. It was good. It was great. But that is what James is talking about. That is what this Old Testament passage is talking about. The nation of Israel in Samson's time, they had listened to the Philistines as friends so unreservedly 
so openly, so freely that they had ended up stopping listening to God. And that's exactly what James is saying, receiving the wisdom of and the way of the world around us without questioning it, without resisting it, without even recognizing that often the ways of this world are not only often at odds with God's way, but often contrary and an enemy to God's way. So God uses Samson to wake Israel up. But you'll notice that the disruption that Samson brings to Israel, it doesn't bring the salvation that all the other judges had in the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. The last words we have here in Judges 15 is that Samson ruled for 20 years. So he did accomplish becoming a judge. It's very similar to the couple of chapters before. The judges ruled for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, something like that. Samson rules for 20 years. But notice, did Israel actually break away from the grip of the Philistines during this time? No. What are the bookends of our passages here? Verse chapter 14, verse 4, at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Verse 20, Samson judged Israel what? What characterized Samson's judgment of Israel? It was in the days of the Philistines. In other words, Samson's salvation was incomplete. It did not accomplish what it meant to accomplish. Even when he was a judge, it was not characterized by Israel turning back to God. It was characterized by the Philistines. See, we and me and us and we and the nation of Israel, we need a much more disruptive salvation. A much more disruptive salvation. John 3, our gospel reading, gives us that something more. Firstly, he says here in verse 13 of John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can ascend to heaven except the one who descended from heaven. In other words, you cannot get yourself up to God. If everything that I've just said, that we were made for God, made to be in his presence, that we will only be made whole and we will only rest if we are resting in God, and that heaven, the realm of the presence of God, is that place, Jesus is saying, you cannot rest yourself. You cannot make yourself whole. You cannot get what you were made for. God has to come down to you. Then Jesus gives this strange reference to this story from Numbers chapter 21. When the nation of Israel is traveling through the wilderness, he says, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on a pole. Well, what is that story about? You remember that the nation of Israel rescued out of Egypt into the wilderness, coming into this new covenantal relationship with God. They've been complaining against God the entire time they're in the wilderness. And they're complaining here in Numbers 21. God isn't giving them the things that they want. They're ungrateful and grumbling against God. And then suddenly they're dealing with venomous snakes traveling through the camp, biting people, people getting sick, people dying because of these snakes. And they cry out to God. And God says, here's what we're going to do. Moses, this is the solution. Take some bronze, craft a, a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and put it up in the front of the camp. And everybody who looks at it is going to be healed. If I was Moses, I'd be like, what? <laughs> How is that supposed to help? Isn't there like an antidote somewhere and a rock that I can find and multiply? This doesn't make sense, right? Why would God do this for them? Of course, he's going to heal them miraculously through this process. But what is happening? Why did God have Moses do that? Well, one reason is Israel actually had to look at what was killing them. To lift something up and put it at the very front of the camp is to put it into the place of maximum visibility and maximum attention. The place where no one in the camp could miss it. They had to look at it. 
to bring it out of the dark, out of the dirt, down where it was around them, out of underneath the rocks, bring it out so they were actually looking at the thing that was actually killing and poisoning them and then accepting that deliverance from that thing had to come from outside them, that they entrust themselves to deliverance that was going to be given to them by looking at the pole. And Jesus says, that's what I am going to do as the son of man. Just as the poisonous snake had to be lifted up, so too does the son of man. Of course, he's talking here about the cross, but it's important to understand that when he uses the word son of man about himself, he's referring to his human nature. So let me make this connection for you. The cross disruptively shows us that the thing that is ultimately killing us and breaking us and poisoning us is us. Jesus is saying, you need to understand and see how desperate your situation actually is and fall into the hands of a deliverer who is outside you. We have to entrust ourselves to the one who can actually ascend to God and bring us with him. This is what we talk about is the good news of the gospel. But it's a disruptive news because it is always and constantly reminding us that what we love is the dark. We want to hide ourselves from what is wrong with ourselves. We want to lie. We want to live in brokenness. To entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, which is what believe in him means here in John 3.16, to entrust ourselves to him, we must at some level, you must at some level understand that you belong on the cross, that I belong on the cross, that it should be me up there. And that's disruptive to ourselves. But it's also beautiful because it also says, instead of me, Christ came and said, I will go instead. We are disrupted by how wrong the situation is with me and how broken I am, but also disrupted by the beauty of a God who says, I will come and take what you deserve so I can bring you up to me. And this does, for those who rightly hold it and understand it, this does, and it should produce a disruptive witness. A disruptive witness. Why? Well, in a true understanding of the gospel, as I just mentioned it to you, it cannot allow you to be self-righteous. It cannot. What did you do to earn God's love and attention? What did you do to get God to come down from heaven to rescue you? Nothing. Nothing. Christ came for me. And if he came for me, and I know how much I don't deserve it, the very next words out of your mouth should be, then he has also come for you. If the gospel has disrupted your life like this, then you know there is no person, no matter what they look like, no matter what they've done, that is outside the love of Jesus Christ. I hope you felt the tension here between James and John. James says, do not be friends with the world. John says, God so loved the world and sent his son into the world and does not condemn the world. Well, those don't seem to match together very well. How do they match together? How do we thread that needle? How do we walk along that line? Because if we're reading James, we might think that the way that we're supposed to be faithful to God is build a wall around the Christian community and keep ourselves out and don't look or see or experience anything about the world that's good and like it and become friends with it, right? 
But then John here says almost the exact opposite. We should be radically open to the world in love, self-sacrificially to the world in love. So how do we thread that needle? Well, the only way is if, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you understand that what sets you apart from the world and makes you a friend of God is not something inherently good or powerful or successful or unique about you. You do not deserve it or earn it or accomplish it. All you simply did is fall into the arms of the Son of God and of his grace, who was already reaching out to you. If you don't do that, then what characterizes you will be self-righteous condemnation because you will intuitively think, I made it here and I made my life correct, and so now I can look down on others and condemn them for not being like me. But instead, if you understand that, then you will have gratitude. And you will love like Christ has loved you. And you will point people to the cross of Jesus Christ, which will be disruptive in their life. Disruptively both in the revelation of sin, but also in the beauty of the love of Jesus. James here gives us an illustration of what being animated by that spirit of gratitude, what that character is supposed to look like. Notice what he says here in James. It's peaceable. The wisdom that comes from above, it's peaceable because you have received peace from God. I'm adding the qualifiers in here, obviously. It's gentle because you know how disruptive the gospel is and how gentle Christ was with you, calling you to him. You're open to reason, he says, which means you're able to be persuaded. Why? Because you already know that you are not always correct and you self-doubt your own understandings. You are full of mercy because God was merciful to you. You care for the down and out financially, socially, the forgotten, the rejected, because you know that Christ has come down from heaven for you to find you and to pull you back to him. And that is a disruptive witness in our world, that kind of gratitude and character, because we live I think in an increasingly ungrateful society, ungrateful for the material blessings that are all around us, ungrateful for our past, ungrateful for the future that is ahead of us, ungrateful for our parents, perhaps on Father's Day, who are often just doing the best that they could, increasingly ungrateful for the limitations of our physical bodies, ungrateful for the situation in which we find ourselves. Samson from the Old Testament, he was an ungrateful dude. Did you notice his prayer that he gives after this massive victory, killing a thousand Philistines in verse 18? It is not a prayer of gratitude. He is thirsty and he does not say, thank you, Lord, for the power that enabled me to conquer these people. Instead, he says, you granted it. You allowed it. In other words, the assumption is I had the power and you didn't hold me back. And then he says, expectantly, and demandingly. I'm thirsty. You going to give me some water or what? You want me to fall into the hands of the Philistines? These uncircumcised people? It's the only point in the entire narrative of Samson in which he suggests that being around the uncircumcised is a bad idea. Everything else in his life indicates that that's exactly where he wants to be. So it's almost as if he's taunting God. He asks for water and God provides water from a rock. And that should clue us in right away. The only other time God provides water from a rock is when the nation of Israel is grumbling and complaining ungratefully in the wilderness. 
He's just showing us what is the true nature here, not only of Samson, but of the nation of Israel at this time. And that is increasingly the voice of our society today. I want, I expect, this isn't good enough. And if you are rightly seeing the gospel, then your deepest response should be a deep gratitude. And we gain gratitude by looking regularly at what we have to be grateful for. Worshiping every week, celebrating communion meal every week, that is how we do that. Thomas Monson, and here's where I close, tells a story of his family's Thanksgiving meal in the kind of early 1900s. His family were farmers, and they were on a farm. And every Thanksgiving, his father would take his three children, and he would bring them into the barn. And he would have them come in and see all of the gifts that God had provided for them in the harvest that year. He would have his kids touch the grain. He would have his kids come and touch and smell the animals that had been born. He wanted them to tactfully and visibly understand what God had provided and what they had to be thankful for. Well, the next year, electricity was coming down the the lane. They'd been saving up money to buy a hay loader. And so then they suddenly said, well, what do we do? This money, should we put it to the hay loader or should we put it to bring electricity to our house? Well, one night the father was watching, Thomas's father was watching his, his, his wife do the clothes in a washboard by kerosene lantern in the sink. And he decided it was time. He said, I'm going to get electricity so that we can get an electric washing machine and his wife can be relieved of the burden of doing the washing. So they did. They electrified the home. They illuminated their home. And Thomas's father took all the kerosene lamps and he brought them up to the attic and they forgot about them. And a couple years later, they had massive floods. After they planted, the crops were destroyed. But it was early, so they just replanted, hoping that this new crop would come in. Instead, it hailed, destroyed all of the crops. Their livestock started getting diseases, and also they had to start selling them off before they died so that they could make their debts. And at the end of the year, at Thanksgiving, at harvest, they had next to nothing. Thomas's father went out that morning, shot a jackrabbit. And of course, the only crop that did survive was the turnips. (laughs) They always seemed to survive. And the Thanksgiving meal was a tough stewed rabbit and boiled turnips. Thomas's mother cried. The kids refused to eat. So Thomas's father went upstairs, got one kerosene lantern, brought it down, put it on the table, lighted it, and turned off all the electricity. Suddenly they realized how dark it was with just one lantern. They had forgotten what it was like without electricity. They'd been taking it for granted. And in the semi-dark, they all give thanks to God. And Thomas says this, in the humble dimness of the old lamp, we began to see clearly again. It was all they had, but it became a lovely meal. Jackrabbit tasted like turkey, and the turnips were the mildest we could recall. Apparently, you can't even make turnips taste good with gratitude. (laughs) But he says this, but home, for all its lack, became rich again to us. My brothers and sisters, we're going to come to this meal in just a moment. Recall and drink deeply once again of the gospel of Jesus Christ and let it become rich in you again. That you who are once far off because of sin have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because he who did not know sin, did not know the broken darkness of your soul, became it. 
became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God, that you might become the sons and daughters of light, the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. So go, disrupt the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, saturated and soaked with gratitude. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would make us a grateful people. Pray that you would disrupt our lives once again with not only our own dependence and brokenness and need for you, but disrupt us as well with the goodness, love, and grace that you've poured out upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.